privilege to have with us Reverend Ian and Mrs. Pat Fitzpatrick. Reverend Ian is our district superintendent over the Canada Central District, and it is our privilege this morning to have him come and share the word of God with us. Please welcome Reverend Ian with us. Pastor Lisa, uh, I think, am I on? That's good. Well, good morning. Uh, last, uh, a year ago, I think it was October or November, I was here for revival services. It's always good to see that you're still here. And uh, you've had a great revival service with uh, Pastor Steve Otley since, and we rejoice in that. It takes about a year and a half to two years to get around our churches, and it's always nice to come to a church when the pastor's not here. Uh, but but uh, Cindy's here, and so she'll report everything that needs to be reported. Plus, it'll be recorded, so I'm sure it will be scrutinized. But I have a high regard for Pastor Nick and for Cindy. Pastor Nick, as he leads uh, this church and um, has other functions on the district, and Cindy, as the leader of our uh, Sunday School Ministries International here on the district, and also our Ladies Retreat, which has a new name now, Renew. And so, uh, you need to show her your appreciation this morning. Would you do that? I am so grateful. Good things are happening across the district. Just before I get to the message this morning, we've uh, started six new churches this past year. We now have 61 churches on Canada Central. We have 20 on Canada, Quebec, and that keeps, uh, that keeps me on the road quite a bit. And uh, I do covet your prayers. Uh, over in Quebec, we had a bit of a miracle. If you'd throw that picture up onto the screen uh, of that church, that is a church in Ormstown, Quebec. And I think there's a couple more pictures if you're inside a beautiful, beautiful facility. And uh, Ormstown is about 10 kilometers north of Franklin Center. And we've been trying to uh, really penetrate the English uh, francophone area of what we would call the, eastern, the western part of Quebec, right on the Ontario border. <clears throat> and a couple of years ago, the gentleman who purchased this church, because it's an old Presbyterian church that uh, they no longer needed, a, uh, uh, a property guy bought it. And uh, it had had a fire in that uh, platform area where the cross is. So he renovated it, and uh, <clears throat> then he asked us if we would like to use it with the hope that in two or three years he would sell it to us for the price he purchased it for, maybe with a little extra. So for about $350,000, we we are going to get this beautiful church right in the center of a place where we have 30 people meeting as a group and needed a place to worship. Now, that's the good news. The fantastic news is that he's changed his mind and decided to give it to us. And just last week... um, it's a great story. Just a couple of weeks ago, the signatures were, were on the dotted line, and uh, we have a brand new church. It seats about 500 people. It's got a basement that will house district assembly, probably not this coming June, but the June after on Canada, Quebec district. Rejoice. It's, it's a great story. It is a great story. And then you think, is this the gift that keeps on taking? And uh, it's not. He's actually going to uh, cut the grass, and he's actually going to plow the snow. And, uh, well, I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop, but I need my faith to be increased. In July of this year, we're going to have 1,400 Haitians who are already part of the Quebec district be joined by five to 700 Haitians from across North America and hosting a uh, USA-Canada-Haitian conference in Montreal. And uh, I just found out about that a couple of days ago, actually. It's been arranged for the last year, but uh, it's nice when the DS gets informed about these things. Uh, But we're going to rejoice, and we're going to have a great time as the Lord is blessing. 
On this district, six new churches started, one church organized uh, in the last couple of months, which means it has not only started, but it has matured, and that is your very own Richmond Hill Church, Solid Rock. And we rejoice with Pastor Tina, and thank you. We were over at the Ajax Connect Church just before Christmas, and that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. My mother would turn in her grave if she was there. Uh, we were raised never to go to the movies. And I went to church in the movies on Sunday morning. Pat and I, uh, the only thing missing was popcorn, but it was good. And uh, Pastor Yanni and his team over there, just, just a tremendous blessing to all of us. Good news again. On our district uh, this year, to this point, to the end of December, and our church year finishes, of course, uh, April 30th, we are $100,000 more than this time last year in the tithes and offerings raised across our 61 churches on the district. That is phenomenal, and we rejoice. And I get to tell these stories. I, I, I'm privileged in that regard to be able to tell these wonderful stories. God is doing good things uh, in our midst. It's great to be with you. So, I heard that your preacher last Sunday preached for 50 minutes. Now, it doesn't matter if you translate that into Portuguese, it's still 50 minutes. So, 50 minutes Canadian is uh, an hour and a half American, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I'll do my best because this morning you're going to be treated in being reminded about the 16 articles of faith in the Church of the Nazarene. I expected a little more than that. <laughs> it's just a reminder because you have them memorized, I know that, so it's just a reminder. And if you have your Bible with you and your manual, you can turn to that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as uh, uh, we hear the Word of the Lord, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Beginning to read at verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Word of the Lord. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. Jesus, for in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because your testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. We hear a lot being said about thinking outside the box. It has become one of the most irritable statements to my ears. Whether we use it in the church or whether we use it in business or whether we use it wherever it happens to be, it is an overused cliche which I think has had its time. We're going to move on to something else. We got to think outside the box. In the church, we got to think outside the box to the point where we almost do the ridiculous because somehow we believe that what's been inside the box for 2,000 years isn't worth anything anymore. Now, I know you don't believe that. I certainly don't believe it. If we're going to dare to think outside the box, we must be reminded about what's inside the box. Because the point of reference to think anywhere outside of any system requires a good knowledge and an obedience to the system that is already in place. 
What system are we talking about? We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a box. We're talking about a wonderful collection of boxes that open their doors every Sunday morning somewhere around this world. Some have already opened them and closed them today because of the time changes. Some are yet to open their doors on the West Coast and beyond. But today, all over our world, boxes will be opened up into which the multitudes of the faithful will pour, into which sinners will pour. Aren't you glad for that? Into which those who are in despair will pour. Those who are in victory will pour. But at the end of the hour and a half sermon, or however long that goes, the multitudes pour out of the box. And we pour out into our world. And in many regards, like the children of Israel, we carry the box like the Ark of the Covenant on our shoulders into the world to demonstrate the presence of Jesus. So, what is it that we're carrying? What is it that the Apostle Paul was so confident about where the Lord would keep us to the very end until His glorious appearing? Well, here we go. We believe that we are carrying the message of God, that God exists, that God is our Creator, that God made everything, that God is in control of everything, that God is everywhere, that God knows all things. That is our reference point. We believe that God is eternally existent in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and rose again, and is coming back. We believe in Jesus. And according to Paul's words to the Colossians, everything you see in Jesus reveals God. Every word that he speaks reveals God. Every action that he's involved in reveals God. If you've seen Jesus, we've seen God. We've just come through the Christmas period. We're now in that epiphanal stage of the church calendar. But we'll soon be in Lent, and then into Easter, and then into Pentecost, and all through this wonderful church calendar. And the church calendar was not devised by somebody sitting behind a desk wondering how we're going to celebrate the manifestations of God. The church calendar is based on the events of God through creation, through redemption, and through the sustaining power of the third thing we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit is the grace of God that keeps us after we make a decision to follow Jesus. But the Holy Spirit has been in work in your life and in my life before we ever came to faith. It's called prevenient grace. If you think about all of the events of your life and you begin to look at where they intersect with different experiences, God has been at the very helm of your life from the day you were born. In fact, from before the day you were born, He had and has a plan for your life and for my life. That prevenient grace means that there are no accidents, there, there are no happenstances, there are no coincidences. There is the wonderful plan of the majestic God revealed in Jesus and implemented by the work of the Holy Spirit. Our little grandson, nearly five years old now, he's learning how to pray. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and, and now he, he prays this at the end of his requests, in the name of the Father and the Son and the whole experiment. <laughs> and I think to myself, no, Frankie, you're wrong. That's not right. And then I think, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the whole experiment is what God has given us on this earth, that He already knows what He's going to do, but He's watching to see what we are going to do. At District Assembly right here on this platform, I preached on the loaves and fishes. 
And when Jesus asked those disciples to solve the problem of the feeding of the 5,000, oh, they started to scratch their head. But the Word of God says that Jesus asked them this to see what they would do because He already knew what He was going to do. And so, Frankie will learn to pray that prayer properly eventually, but I'm just going to let him enjoy these moments, and I'm going to learn from him in the name of the Father and the Son and the whole experiment of which you are a part today, because God is watching His church, and He's watching to see what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, when we're going to do it, if we're going to exercise fasting and prayer to come to a decision, if we're going to just run ahead of Him. It is this wonderful whole experiment. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Scriptures. Everything in this beautiful book which is falling apart as I speak, there's my Bible right there. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> well, actually, somebody said, you need to get a new Bible. The problem is, if I get a new Bible, it'll take me the rest of my life transferring all the notes that I have in this one. So, I'm going to keep it. Forgive me for its condition, but in this Word here, we've got everything we need to know about our eternal destiny. The Word of God is provided to us in every language, different translations. And don't fight about translations as long as the one you have is taken from the original language. That's all you need to understand. You don't need to become a student of Hebrew or Greek. You don't need to go to class. It's good if you can, but you don't need to because somebody else has been paid to do that already, and when you bought your Bible, you contributed to their scholastic efforts. But the Word of God is there for all of us, and there's no question in there that um, doesn't have an answer. You might say, well, is, is everything in society today uh, answered uh, by the Bible. It may not be specifically addressed, but there's enough general consensus from the triune Godhead to give us the solutions for everything we're likely to face in this era or in the era uh, to come. Not everything in this Word is true, by the way. Not everything in there, the things the devil said is not true. The things that the side of evil suggests is not true. But everything in this Word is for our benefit and our good. Study it, says the Word. Study it to prove yourself as a workman and a workwoman, worthy and fit to be able to deliver this outside the box. I go to a number of… <laughs> we go to all of our churches. Our church in Sault Ste. Marie… Um, has a, a tracker up here at the front, and, and, and they track people as they read the Bible every year. And in a calendar year, you have to read the whole Bible to, to be a, an unembarrassed part of the congregation. And I said to Pastor Phil, that's great. That, that is great. But I, I said I would rather uh, place more importance on somebody who gets stuck on one verse for six months until the truth of it begins to absolutely permeate their souls than to be able to say, oh, another year, another read through the Bible. Now, I'm not putting reading through the Bible down. Don't get me wrong. But I am saying don't just read through the Bible to be able to say at the end of the year, I've read through the Bible. If you're stuck somewhere for a year on one verse or one word, stay there until the Holy Spirit reveals to you what it means. What it, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. And at the end of his marathon, John Wesley said, oh, of the reading of books and the writing of them, there are many readers and authors, but give me one book. Just give me one book, he said, the Bible. The direction to get us from earth to heaven. Hallelujah. We believe in the Holy Scriptures. We believe in sin. We believe in sin. A church that doesn't believe in sin is a church that has no message. You have to believe in sin to enjoy redemption. 
We have to believe that man is fallen in order to be delivered. And so we believe in sin. We believe in original sin. That because of Adam and Eve, we are a fallen race. Don't be too surprised by the behavior in our world today. Because it's a fallen world. It's a broken world. The church is the redemptive message in the world. That's why we're so important. That's why it is necessary for us to understand what's in the box before we dare try to modify it just to please everybody out there. We have standards. We believe in certain things. Those things will never change. Fly that flag high, the flag of the righteous. Not the flag of the self-righteous, but the flag of the righteous who are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Our message is that we understand sin. We understand that the greatest bacteria in all the world is sin, and it was released in the Garden of Eden. How many of you have watched those movies where, you know, you've got these uh, epidemics or you've got these strains that cause panic in the world? Let me tell you, the biggest one, the greatest one was released in the Garden of Eden. And the Petri dish of our world is watching that go from generation to generation. It crosses all national boundaries. It crosses all races. It actually crosses all generations. We've just had an Ebola scare. Uh, we've had scares before that, SARS, and we've had other scares, and we will have in the future. But in the midst of all of those scares, the greatest one continues to march forward almost unaddressed, unless it's addressed by the church. And that is the bacteria of sin that has a 100% fatality rate. The wages of sin is death. Like, not you might, not let's see if we can find a cure before too much longer. No, 100% fatality rate comes from the bacteria of sin that touches every man, every woman, because it is spread through the seed of Adam. Now, think about the immensity of that. Think about the enormity of that, and then think about the church and our task to take the message of the box outside into our world. Don't mess with it. Don't modify it too much. Don't try to get fancy and smart with it just to please a society that wants something different. No, take the message just as you received it and deliver it. We believe in atonement. Thank the Lord. It's one thing to talk about a 100 percent fatality rate, but there is also the great high percentage of redemption. It is appointed unto man once to die. There's no getting away from that. We've all got an appointment with that, but we will rise again. Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those whose sins are forgiven, those who are made new in Christ. In Adam we die. In Christ we are made alive again. The great hope of the world is Jesus. Jesus. I, I, I was blessed just the week before Christmas, uh, between Christmas and New Year's. Our pastor at the Armenian church on Bayview opened up his doors, and the church got together, and they gathered all these clothes and household goods for our Syrian refugees that are, that are coming en masse to our city and to our country. And uh, there was supposed to be a gathering time for two or three days, and then the next three days, there would be the, you'd, you'd deliver the goods to people. That had to be delayed because there was so much stuff coming in. You imagine the basement of a church completely full of things, not discarded things, not things thrown away, but things that are going to make a difference in somebody's life. There was a Jewish lady in the Bayview area, that Bayview Avenue, as you know, highly populated by, by people of the Jewish faith. And she said, I would like to help. Can you come pick some stuff up before Sabbath? So Pastor Haney got into a conversation about Sabbath and how we understand that and everything. And, and so finally, 
she said, well, I, I get the stuff before Sabbath, and, and I just want to help. Now, listen, we're talking about Jews helping Syrians. Don't lose that. We lived in the Middle East for three years, and we know that that doesn't ordinarily happen unless something else is happening. And so, on one of the days of the pickup, uh, the families were there to receive their goods, and this lady came into the church, and she came in with a dinner set. It was an old dinner set, you know, but it was a good one, you can tell. And she walked in with this dinner set, and she said to Pastor Haney, I want you to give that to a family, but I want you to tell them the story behind it. Well, what's the story behind it, said Pastor Haney. Well, the story is that my mother, now this lady's advanced in years, her mom survived Auschwitz. And after that, they had to rebuild their lives. And so she then had a husband, and then she had family, children, one of which was standing in our church with this dinner set. And she said, my mom said, from this day forward, this dinner set will be on the table every time we eat. And sometimes there'll be a little bit on those plates, and sometimes there'll be a lot of things on those plates, but I promise you, there will always be something on those plates. And she said, I want to give this now to a Syrian refugee family, but I want you to tell them the story. Listen, I, 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 I couldn't believe the story. I, well, I did. You know what I mean? That yeah, part of speech, we, we don't believe it, but we do believe it. That's the story we have for our world when the church is doing its job of proclaiming a message of salvation and atonement. It's not that we're promising people an abundance of everything every day, but what we're saying is that every day God will supply in His riches. Sometimes it'll be a little bit on your plate, and sometimes it'll be overflowing on your… but there'll always be something. There'll always be something. There'll always be something for the church. There'll always be something for the world because that's what God is all about in providing a means of grace that will dig in to that mortality rate and that fatality rate to drop it from the 100% of uh, passing earthly-wise to a great proportion of people who are leaning over the balconies of heaven as we speak today, urging us on eternally, now and forevermore. So we believe in provenient grace. It draws people. It brings people to the place where God can get a hold of us. I used to love uh, science class. I was never good. I'd say, your pastor has a bachelor of science, right? What an amazing guy he is. He could do just about anything, couldn't he? And I think he does. But science wasn't my strong suit, but I used to love the practical part. And so I learned the difference between a microscope and a telescope. <laughs> now, it's important to know that. A microscope makes things bigger. So you have your microscope and you put your slide in there and you can see things that you would never see before. That's important. A telescope brings things closer. A major difference. You couldn't look at the moon through a microscope, but you couldn't look at a slide through a telescope. They each have their important purpose. And this wonderful, provenient grace of God, which results in us coming to Him in the first place and then staying close to Him because this grace is a keeping grace as well, Oh, helps us to make things bigger when we can hardly see them and understand them. The revelation of God's grace will bring things into clarity. It will sharpen the focus. The means of grace will bring things closer. His presence is not out there in the universe somewhere. His presence is right here in the midst of His people, right here in our hearts. And it doesn't matter whether you've had a heart attack or not, there's still room for Jesus in there. 
It doesn't matter what condition we find ourselves in. Jesus is in the midst of His people because He is brought closer by this wonderful belief in the grace of God. I better move very quick. Repentance. We believe in a sincere and thorough change of mind in regard to sin. Listen, I believe in altar services. I really do. I believe that when people come to the altar, we come now, uh, usually twice in the Church of the Nazarene. We have a family altar. And that happens when Pastor Lisa led us in prayer today. Bring your needs to the altar. That, that's a petitional uh, approach to God. But there's another use for this altar, and it's a contritional approach to God contritional, where the expectation at the end of revival services is that, oh, we've got a number of people at the altar. Listen, there was an era in the church, and maybe still is, where the success or failure of a church service was measured by how many people came to the altar. I've been around the church long enough to know that that certainly was a, a canon. That was a measuring rod. I, I'm not sure it was the most accurate, but it did mean something. It, it meant that God was moving in the midst of His people. It meant that His Holy Spirit was alive and well in the midst of His people. But I, I want to tell you this. <sighs> Repentance does not always need an altar at the front of a church for it to happen. I know people who've been saved in Tim Hortons. I know people who've been saved in a hospital ward. I know people who've been saved in a funeral home, not the one who was the subject of it, but people who've been visiting. You can't get saved when you're dead. You can only get saved when you're alive. Now, now pay attention to that. There's a theological school out there that believes otherwise, but, but you know, you, gotta, you have to be alert. You have to be sensitive and alive and breathing to be saved. And while it's important to have the altar in the church, and I am a stickler for that, oh, I tell you what, when inside the box gets outside the box, you can create an environment where an altar can be just about anywhere. Because an altar is a place where God meets His creation. An altar is a place where we have a contrition of heart. The, 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 the old church used to call it the mourner's bench. Wow, that's brilliant. In fact, if you look at the history of the Church of the Nazarene, family altar is a relatively new invention in the history of our church. And in fact, some of our uh, founding fathers would cringe at the idea of a family altar because they believed that an altar was a place of mourning and a place of contrition and a place of brokenness and a place where I'm never going to do that again, Lord. Now, that is very important because that is true repentance, and we believe that God's Spirit enables us to turn around and walk away and trust Him to keep us until the day of His appearing. We believe in justification, that once we do that, we're justified, and we are adopted into the family of God. It's amazing to me. How many ties are made in the church? Take a look around you. Just look at your person sitting beside you. They may be related to you uh, through blood, but they are related to you through blood, if you know Jesus. The blood of Calvary. We're brothers and we're sisters and that is the family of God, and we've been adopted into the family of God because we've been born again. This is what we believe in the church of the Nazarene, and we need each other. Sometimes we're stronger. You know, one of the worst things that can happen in a marriage relationship is that if both people, the husband and wife, are always on a high at the same time and always on a low at the same time. You imagine that? Now, I saw some people elbowing their spouse there. Is that, 
Don't take it personally. But here's what happens. There's a tremendous vacuum that's created. If both are on a high at the same time and both are on a low at the same time, wow, you got to be careful when you have to knock that door. It's better if there's a balance. So if I'm on a high one day and Pat's on a low, hopefully I will lift her up. And if the opposite is true, hopefully she will lift me up. And in the church, not everybody comes to church in a good mood. Have you noticed that? Especially when it's 25 after 12 and this preacher won't stop. Not everybody comes to church in a good mood. We're not all. Uh, we're all cut from the same cloth. That, that is the cloth of Christ. But, but there are just times whenever we're having a bad day. I spilt half a cup of Tim Horton's coffee over my tie on the way here this morning. Really did. I'm not kidding you. You can't notice because it's dark. If I was wearing a pink tie, it would be a big problem. And I wasn't pleased with that. I mean, you don't go, oh, goody. Wow. I can wring that out and have it later. No. No. It just ticks you off. It annoys you. There are things that really annoy us. But we're part of the family, and when we come together, and somebody just comes alongside you, and it doesn't have to know what your issue is, just say, love you and praying for you. What a difference that makes. What a difference that makes. There's a powerful story in the history of British history in, uh, in the Pentland Hills just outside Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, there was a war or part of a battle that was fought between the Dragoons and uh, the Covenanters. The Covenanters of Scotland wanted to change the religious system from a, an Episcopalian, Anglican control to, to a Presbyterian one. But there were only 300 Covenanters, and there were like 5,000 dragoons. And so they went out, and, and there was a massacre. There were some survivors, and the report that comes back from the survivors is this, that the weaker Covenanters asked themselves or asked their brothers to tie themselves to their belt in case they would be tempted to run away. When I look at the church, I, I, I think the same thing. Not everybody in this room is on the same spiritual level. We're in degrees of spiritual growth. But we need to tie ourselves to the stronger ones in case we're tempted to just pack it all in. And that stronger one may have a day when they need to tie themselves to you, the weaker one to be able to learn that we are together in this. This is the church, and we believe in it. We believe in Christian holiness, that God is able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He's able to take away our sin. The Bible says in John's epistles, you know that He was manifested, God became flesh, that He might destroy the works of the devil. And before that, John says, He was manifested to take away our sin. So if you reverse those, He's manifested to take away our sin. That is forgiveness. That is salvation. But He was also manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Think about it. Transformation, complete and utter, to be able to be presented before our Father who is in heaven, blameless and spotless, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Don't settle for anything less than that. If you do, it's a slippery slope. We believe in Christian holiness. We believe in the adoption into the family of God. We believe in the church that we are the apostolic witnesses of Christ. Basically, the church is made up of witnesses to the testimony of Jesus. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians in the passage I read. By our testimonies. You know what a witness is? A witness is somebody who has experienced reality. But if you go to a courtroom and you hear witnesses for the crown and witnesses for the prosecution, you'll wonder who was where when. 
If you try to resolve marriage conflicts, you have witnesses on either side. Suddenly you begin to say, where is the truth? The truth lies somewhere in between what you say and what you say. A witness of Jesus, however, is one who has not only seen, but believes. Because the Word says, blessed are those who believe when they see, but blessed are those even more who believe when they don't see. So, how can we reconcile a witness if you haven't seen what you're speaking about? It's called oral tradition. It's called belief in the stories that have been told from the beginning that were written down in God's Word. It's interesting that in Illinois a few years ago, a a case was brought before the Supreme Court of that state, which resulted in a new law being adopted into the books. It's called the hearsay law, the hearsay law. You'd never, you'd never believe that that would be a legitimate law. You know, and you're going to convict me on hearsay? And yet, in the church, we live and move and have our being on hearsay. Think about it. You have a personal experience with Jesus, but every time we listen to testimonies, it's a hearsay law at work. Wow, that really happened to you? Well, I'm either going to reject it think you're crazy, or I'm going to say, praise the Lord. We live on the strength of hearsay. Who told you that you could be born again? It's a fundamental principle in the church. I believe. I believe. I believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the letters that Paul wrote. I believe in the Pentateuch. I believe in the Psalms. I believe in the prophets and the patriarchs. I believe in the book of Revelation. Look, you can't prove to somebody anything other than what you have heard. In fact, it was the principle upon which the disciples were bold enough to be disobedient to a national ruling. The national ruling was, don't say another thing about this Jesus. What did the disciples say? How can we do anything else than talk about the things we have seen and the things we have heard? We believe that God, in His infinite wisdom through the church, has given us a history, has given us a box, has given us something that we need to get a hold of and not let go of and take it into our world. We believe in baptism. I'm almost done. We believe in baptism. Am I going to beat those 50 minutes, guys? I'm on track to beat that long-winded Brazilian brother. We believe in baptism. Look at this back here. There's a baptism tank. We believe in this tangible evidence that we die in Adam and we are raised in Christ. It is a testimony. It is your whole body speaking to the message of Jesus. It's not just our lips. It's our, it's our whole body coming up out of that water. And if our Lord and Savior subjected himself to baptism in the River Jordan, then we can too. Every believer, you need to be baptized in water. You need to be baptized in water. We believe in it, and if you're a member in the church, it's got to be done. And if it's not, let's fill the tank right now. We believe in the Lord's Supper. Amen. If you hear water running, you'll know somebody's going to be baptized. We believe in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I don't know how often, but every month here, first Sunday of the month, what a wonderful tradition. I remember uh, growing up in the Methodist church in Lurgan, Northern Ireland, where at the end of the service, on the first Sunday of the month, all the sinners were invited to leave. Now, the pastor didn't say that. He didn't say, now, all of you sinners, if you just get up during the singing of the last hymn and make your way out through those doors. But he meant it. 
Because what he said was, all the believers during the singing of the last hymn, why did you come forward and receive of the Lord? Well, I wasn't a believer in those days. And so you kind of looked at your mates in the back row of the balcony. No reflection on you, but that's where I sat, way up there. And we looked at each other and we thought, well, time to go. We'll be home in time for the match. It was just, and I didn't think too much about it. I wasn't really all that offended. I, I personally didn't care a whole lot, but now I care. I care so much about people who have not yet made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that I believe that in the act of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, you actually could. I believe not in a closed communion, because who am I? I'm not God. I, I'm not. But I don't believe in a wide open communion either, and neither does the Church of the Nazarene. Here's what the church believes that it is distinctively for those who are prepared for reverent appreciation of its significance. That's wise. That is the history of the church, general assembly after general assembly, discussing and coming together with a statement that makes total sense and does not try to take the place of God, that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is distinctively, distinctively for those who have a reverent appreciation for its significance. After that, it's you and God. After that, it's me and God. It's not dividing asunder the righteous and the unrighteous. Even Jesus didn't dare to do that. Whenever the disciples came to him and said, look, there's weeds growing in this patch, he said, never mind. Wait until harvest, and they will reveal themselves. Now, if Jesus is prepared to do that, then I'm certainly prepared to follow that kind of an example as well. We believe in divine healing. How many of you have been touched by the hand of God? You have, spiritually, everybody. Physically, you've been healed. Physically, you've been restored, but guess what? Every person who's been healed will die, including Lazarus. He died again because that's the plan. We die, and then we are raised, but we believe in divine healing. We believe in the things that cannot be explained. We believe in tumors being reduced by the hand of Jesus. We believe in medical science that helps to do that. We believe in doctors and physicians, but we believe also that the Lord, if He chooses, can heal a body. There's evidence for it because I heard it and I experienced it. We believe in the second coming we believe that Jesus is coming. I thought that would get at least one amen. <laughs> Have we forgotten that the end of the story is that Jesus is coming back for His church? He's coming back for His box. He's coming back for His box. So think outside of it all you want, but in the final analysis, we're all going to be packaged up and we're going to be raised. Can you imagine driving past a cemetery this afternoon? And you're driving past, and Jesus decides to come back this afternoon. That means there's no service here tonight, okay? No service tonight. But He is coming back this afternoon, and you're driving past the cemetery, and you look out, and you go, all, all the bodies are, are floating out of the grave. Because the Bible says the dead in Christ rise first. So the first indication that Jesus is coming back is that the cemeteries are in a state of chaos and that the people who know Jesus are already halfway up to meet Him. Think about it. There's my dad. He's still wearing those dungarees. There's my mom. Looks like she just got her hair done yesterday. Listen, I, I know there's a humorous sight, but this is true. We believe this. This is our fundamental reason to exist, that we're preparing people for eternity, and they're going to rise up and meet Jesus, and guess what? Your car is about to be totaled if you know Jesus, because you're going to meet Him too. 
the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. We're going to meet him. We're going to meet him. Think about it. Don't lose sight of it. It's not a fairy tale. We believe it. We are going to meet. We believe in the second coming of Jesus and don't want to leave this on a, on a downer, but I have to say it. We believe in eternal judgment. We still believe in sheep and goats. Listen, it's not that popular a message anymore, but I'm telling you there are still those who will go to heaven and there are still those who will go to hell. And I don't say that joyfully. I say that with great, great burden. Our task in the church is to change the statistics through the power of God so that many more will be going to heaven than are going to hell. Not everybody will be saved from hell. I, I'm not that idealistic or utopian in my thinking because the Bible says there are some people who are so wicked that that's their destiny. That, that's, that's it. Sons of perdition. Sons of perdition. That's not the person who steals a half a bounty bar out of the convenience store. No, sons of perdition are different. But our task in the kingdom of God, in this box work of God, is to change that statistic and give God the glory. Brother Lucas, in your country, the great country of Brazil, in the north eastern part of that country, there's a city called Natal, right? Natal, you know that city, Natal. I've never been there, so this is hearsay. And in the city of Natal, there is a cashew tree that is, wait for it, 9,000 square feet big. How big is this building? Anybody know that? I have no idea. But it's about nine, is it? I don't know how big this particular sanctuary is, but this tree, this cashew tree is 9,000 square feet big. And I saw a picture of it just a few months ago, and I was interested, first of all, curious to know how the, a 9,000 square foot tree could stay up until I saw the picture. And the nature of this tree is that it will grow up it will put out its branches, and then some of the little, whatever those are, fingerlings will fall back to the ground, and they will take root in the ground, and they will appear somewhere else. And this is kind of happening in motion all, oh, it's taken a lot of years for that to happen. And they plant themselves, and they come up, and they strengthen that mother load of cashews. It's a protected tree, as you can imagine. And I get a picture of the church. I get a picture of the church being planted. I get a picture of the church putting down its roots and its fingerlings into the soil, taking root and coming up somewhere else we hardly know where, until we have this canopy. And what did Jesus say about canopies? What did he say about seeds? He talked about that little mustard seed that will be so small you couldn't even see it. It'll grow, and it'll bear fruit, and it will provide canopy and shade for the world. People of the church, I love you. People of the box, I celebrate you. If you're going to think outside of it, take a few moments to think inside of it. And may God richly bless you. Brother, I beat the 50 minutes by half a minute. Come, God bless you. Sorry. <laughs> Better turn.